1: Hello and okay. welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're thrilled today to welcome Maddie Pelling, who is a fellow at the John Rylands Research Institute and a specialist in early modern art and history. Hi, Maddie.
0: Hi, nice to be here.
1: How is lockdown? Are you bored I, yet?
0: You know, it's okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm in Staffordshire. Um, I moved in with my parents just before lockdown um, for a short term job near manchester thinking i would be here for three months and i'm still here So yeah. <laughs> still
1: shock. Oh, but at least there's no rent and scary things to take care of
0: yeah i mean you know there's a little bit of rent but you know they've accepted two cats and a dog along with me so <laughs> yeah. Oh,
1: <laughs> excellent. Okay. Uh we're going to talk to you today about the Duchess of Portland um who was uh, a collector and she had this uh, this museum basically to tell our listeners what we're here for. Um and it was quite a special collection. Um and following her death it's sort of been sold off. But Maddie you're here to talk to us about what's happened to it and trying to recreate it. So start us off by telling us who was the Duchess of Portland?
0: Okay, so the Duchess of Portland is someone who many people won't have heard of, um, and yet really her work and her legacy um, remain in many ways at the heart of our culture in Britain and the stories that we continue to tell ourselves about who we are and where we came from. So to give her her full title, Margaret Cavendish Bentinck, the second Duchess of Portland, was born in 1715 and she lived until 1785. So she's this incredibly important figure in 18th century life who, for various reasons, has been virtually forgotten today. So she was the daughter of a famous collector, Edward Harley, who um, he had a collection of ancient and medieval manuscripts which formed the basis of what we now know to be the British Library. Um, So she was also the mother of the third Duke of Poland, who served twice as the British Prime Minister. And she's actually the great, 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 I forget how many greats, grandmother (laughs) of of our current queen, Elizabeth II. So she's really sort of invested in um, the institutions of our country. But what's most important for us, and I think most interesting, you know, in thinking about her aside from her famous male relatives... Is that she was part of this intellectual group um, of men and women who were known at the time in the 18th century as the blue stockings. So this is a bunch of people who came together in salons across London and more provincial towns and private houses across the country where they would discuss you know literature, art, science and other sort of pressing issues of the day. And the Duchess was really at the heart of the cultural conversations that were taking place in these spaces and as part of her contribution to this world of sort of uh, intellectual experiment she collected this vast private museum which um, became known by the 1780s as the Portland Museum and it was a sort of bigger better version of the collection that her father had made and which she'd grown up with as a child, um, and it contained, amongst other things, thousands of natural history specimens, so plants, shells from all over the world, but also things like Roman antiquities, um, renaissance art, um, and it became this important extension of the blue stocking salons where, as I think we're going to you know, go on to talk about, people came from all over to look at and actually to publish work on the curiosities that she'd assembled. Um, and Alex, as you rightly say, the really interesting part of her story is that following her death in 1785, her museums actually sold off to the public and so it's essentially destroyed. Um, but with a little bit of detective work, we can actually find that, you know, many of the treasures in her museum have made their way eventually into our national collections. So if you go today to, for example, the Natural History Museum or the British Museum, you'll see objects on display there that were in her collection. And so her work is hidden in plain sight, basically. And although she has been, you know, sort of discounted from canonical history, um, parts of her collection are still sort of being used to tell the stories about our past and how we perceive our place in the world on a sort of national level. Mm -hmm. So let's go back and
1: sort of write this wrong then. Uh, first put her in context with her collecting. Why is collecting a big deal in the 18th century?
0: Okay so collecting objects that are interesting or important in some way has, it's been around for you know much of human history but it's really in the early modern period that the cabinet of curiosity takes off. So this is something that has its roots in the medieval world, where people would gather and display religious relics, you know, so the bones of saints, the foreskin of Jesus, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And from the 16th and 17th centuries onwards, um, it also starts to reflect the fact that Europeans are increasingly able to travel, um, to trade with, and, you know, it's very important to note, to colonise non-European lands and communities. And it's these early versions of museums that are really interesting in showing off objects from these early encounters, um, and they, they sort of pick objects that are unique and make people feel, you know, wonder or fear or excitement. So you might expect to see things like a huge fossil or some unusual looking weaponry, or my personal favourite, a stuffed crocodile.
1: Yeah, they love and, stuffing things, don't they, at this point? Yeah, absolutely,
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you get a lot of um, yeah, sort of taxidermied animals that you know aren't native to Britain, and these sort of these wacky curiosities. So by the 18th century, when the Duchess of Portland is collecting, people start to become less interested in what is unique or and what is sort of wonderful, and instead they become interested in types of things. So how objects in nature and you know sort of man-made artifacts can be categorised. Um, and understood, so this is taking place within the period that becomes known as the Enlightenment and of course, you know, this is quite a loaded term, Um, so simply put, it's the idea that within 18th century Europe in particular, rational thinking and the development of science and literature um, sort of leads the world out of this supposed dark age of superstition folklore, belief in magic, but of course this can and you know should be contested. Um, It obviously discounts many other cultures, ways of thinking and knowing, but essentially this is a time when philosophers, writers and scientists um, set about bringing what many saw as um, order to the world around them, and collecting and category- categorizing objects sort of becomes one way that this can be done. And this is what happens in the Duchess of Portland's Museum. As ever, mm-hmm.
1: men get a bit arsey when women try and get in on the action, don't they? Why is there this anxiety around women collecting?
0: Okay, so there really there is an anxiety, definitely, and this is something that we see. Um, in the sort of the early histories that are written of the Dutch support and her collecting. So in the 20th century, a lot of um, sort of biographers or people interested in the history of her family will always mention her in, you know, sort of passing remarks. And they talk about her as though she's like a crazy hoarder. So it's the idea of, you know, they call her um, manic um, and that she had this sort of unstoppable you know unquenchable thirst to acquire things and that she didn't really understand what she was doing like an uncontrollable um, this,
1: female basically
0: Yeah absolutely yeah you know someone who just can't stop shopping basically oh, can't stop you're... buying things. Yeah exactly exactly and this is this is um actually an insult that's kind of leveled at her um, in the 18th century by some of her contemporaries. So people like Horace Walpole, who um, was another very famous collector, um, you know, he he described um, some of her mu- museum when it's auctioned off at the end of her life. And he, sort of, he goes along to the auction and sort of sneers at, at what's on display and, you know, says she had no taste and she didn't know what she was doing. She just couldn't help herself, you know. Um, And so really, my work's interested in um, sort of, you know, rewinding that narrative a little bit and thinking about the choices that she made in her collecting, you know, what kind of objects she went after and what kind of stories she was trying to tell. And putting Walpole (laughs) in his place as well. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how can we reconstruct a museum that no longer exists? Uh, But let's talk about what did it look like when it was hers? How did she display it?
0: Who got to visit? Um, And what would they see? Okay, so this is um, sort of a really central question. So how do you go about researching a collection that doesn't exist anymore? So as I said, you know, you can trace some individual objects, but the nature of a collection means that artefacts really have been gathered together in a very specific way to give them meaning or to tell a story. So when that is disrupted and a collection is destroyed as the Duchess of Portland's was. How can we know anything about what the original collector intended? So as I've said, my research kind of interested in uncovering these sort of original messages that the museum held. So why did the Duchess acquire, for example, um, a particular shell? Um, From who did she acquire it? Um, And what did it mean to display it next to something like, for example, an ancient Egyptian figurine or, you know, a Native American axe head? So The Duchess's life, um, during the Duchess's life, the museum is stored across two sites. So it's at her country house um, at Bulstro Park in Buckinghamshire and her townhouse in Privy Gardens, Whitehall in London, which sadly neither building exists anymore, but I believe um, the house in Privy Gardens is actually pretty much where the Ministry of Defence is today. Okay. You know, going and walking that area. Um, so the starting point in recovering something of what the museum looked like is the sale catalogue that was printed um, as part of the 1786 auction that happened after she died when the museum was sold off. And of course this isn't a complete record of everything she had, but it gives an idea of some of the things in the museum. So. Um, if I may, I'm just going to read out some of the really brief catalogue descriptions. So, Absolutely. As well as, as well as, like you know, the, like I said, the thousands of shells from all over the world, birds' nests, um, crystals and fossils, um, there were some of these items. So there's a curious feather ornament from New Zealand, a lady's headdress, an elegant silk screen from China, two wampum belts of the Indians of North America, a hard stone with an inscription in the runic character, a specimen of the hair of Mary, Queen of France, and a miniature portrait of Sir Walter Raleigh. So this is kind of like crazy mixture of historic, um, you know, sort of ethnographic um, objects going on here. But um, the museum wasn't just an indoor space. So... You know, when we go to a museum today, we expect to see things in glass cases. It's all quite static, but actually, at Bulstrode, so her country estate in Buckinghamshire, um the museum sort of extended outside, so there were hundreds of peacocks, these are all living animals, so there was peacocks, mm. there was some Indian bison, and there was even a zebra um and I actually found. A really bizarre reference in um a letter um which mentions that the zebra dies in a tragic accident and that's all I know about it and I'm so desperate to know what happened oh no. That's <laughs> like the
1: parrot um at Andrew Jackson's funeral, no one recorded what the parrot said. It's oh. like unbearable. Apparently it offended no. everybody and people. <laughs> shocked. Excellent. And no so one knows you. what it said. But yeah, that must be really irritating.
0: Yeah, it's so frustrating. But, you know, this these sort of brief glimpses, they give us, um, you know, a window onto this array of, you know, really sort of colourful, historic um, and exotic objects. Um, but actually, this is an assembly that, you know, it's bringing different things together, but it's doing something really important in that it's gathering artefacts from British and European histories. So things like the portrait miniature of Sir Walter Raleigh or the hair of Mary Queen of France. And it's placing them alongside things found, uh, traded you know, or stolen from indigenous communities in places like North America and New Zealand. Um, and there's also items in there from you know, Hawaii, Lapland, many other places. Um, in order to really form a picture um, or a narrative of Britain's place in the world as understood by these white aristocratic people who are doing the collecting. So it's essentially an investment in the colonial stories that obviously go on to shape the 19th century and beyond and are still having a tangible impact in the world. Um, you know, but it's, it's a kind of, it's a knowledge making process that is interested in the past, but also in placing the people doing the collecting at what was seen as the forefront of some geographical exploration, but also intellectual experiment, really. So uh, she didn't open it to the
1: public, so who got to go and see these things and why would they go?
0: Yeah, so the museum was invitation only. So in the 18th century, um, public museums really start to appear in some form from sort of the 1750s. So you get the founding of the British Museum then, um, which is made up of the collection of um, Sir Hans Sloane, who's a contemporary, uh, slightly earlier um, collector of of the Duchess. Um, so the Duchess's Museum is private and it sustains this really broad private community um, of people who are friends with the Duchess and who might be interested in, um, you know, bringing her gifts, um, gaining her patronage, but also um, using the collection in its own right for scientific research or artistic inspiration so George III and Queen Charlotte are regular visitors um, as well as Elizabeth Montague who at the time is known as the Queen of the Blue Stockings um, so you know the, the sort of um, the social circle that the Duchess was part of um, and she's one of the Duchess's oldest friends. Uh, so the shell and plant collections um, that the Duchess gathered drew naturalists as well, like Joseph Banks, who'd accompanied Captain Cook on his voyage to uh, Tahiti in New Zealand. Um, and my personal favourite is the French botanist and philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So Rousseau is a really interesting case. So he famously said that women weren't really intellectually capable of doing science um, and that the Duchess was... Um, you know not necessarily up to his intellectual standards but when he meets her he has to admit that she's actually really knowledgeable um and he's sort of so surprised by this and i just love that anecdote but i think it you know, obviously reflects more on him yeah absolutely <laughs> on her abilities um, so i mean actually the duchess's museum is this really important place um for learned women and there's you know real opportunity here um, for women that there aren't necessarily in other institutions in the 18th century. So in the 1740s, for example, um, the Duchess employs the famous Anglo-Saxon scholar, Elizabeth Elstob to live at Bulstrode and to teach her children. Mm. Um, but more than this, the museum is a sort of experimental environment. So Like I say, it's not just objects that are inside glass cases, but it's always buzzing with activity. Um, So, you know, if you visited, you might expect to see visitors and servants in the corner sort of drying and pressing flowers or sketching shells. Um, writing out catalogues of objects, or um, the paintings on the walls was very popular um, and also you know essays, people would write essays on the historical objects in the collections so there's an example that I really love of Mary Hamilton who was a friend of the Duchess and she'd served um, at the court of George III in the royal nursery looking after his children, they called it, they called her Hammy um, and she comes to the museum and she writes an essay on the earring that's supposedly worn by Charles I when he has his head chopped off. Um, and this was uh, an object that was, you know, a favorite of the Dutch of and She would bring it out to show people and it kind of transported people to that really important historic moment. So this is a really exciting place to be and it's one where men and women could um, learn as well as socialize. And actually those two aspects are kind of blur together. So there's a fantastic description um, by another of the Duchess's friends, Mary Delaney, who is a famous uh, letter writer and artist in her own right. And she talks about the drawing room at Bullstrade being so full of sieves which are being used to, you know, clean the specimens. And the tables and chairs are so covered in paper and scissors and sort of the other apparatus of the museum um, that anyone visiting will struggle to find a seat. I think that sort of sums up the environment. (laughs) You know. He's um,
1: hugely influential, therefore, in and books that are written at the time, isn't she?
0: Yeah, she is. So she's the patron of several um, scientists, uh, sort of naturalists, early botanists, who um, she gives money to to go on expeditions around the UK. And it's important to note that she actually never travels beyond Britain herself. Um, which is really fascinating, you know, considering that she's gathering this museum that's, that's coming Mars, and
1: she never had the urge to go herself
0: yeah, so this is something that sort of is quite intriguing me really. so she regularly goes down to the south coast um, mm. around Weymouth and collects shells from the beach there um, but beyond that, she doesn't really travel um so she sort of gets i mean obviously she has enough money and enough status within eighteenth century elite culture to send people off to the ends of the earth and to you know make these connections um so essentially to you know to send people to get things for her Mm, Um, i just think the compulsion
1: for me would be to want to go and find them myself
0: yeah absolutely i mean I, i suppose an important thing to remember is that she is a woman and whilst she for most of her career as a collector she's actually a widow and therefore you know financially independent um obviously incredibly wealthy um she is still a woman and there is this hostility that we've already spoken about you know about women who are collectors and their anxiety around that and the fact that they're not taken seriously um and so travel um to some of the areas that she's interested in. So, you know, she's collecting objects from places like New Zealand and Hawaii. It just wasn't, uh, travel to those places wasn't available for women of her status at this Mm. time. Um, She
1: must have been constantly badgering people to bring her stuff then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So she really sort of sets up a network of um, different, people from lots of different walks of life really who can sort of source materials for her so one of some most regular ways that she does this is by asking her friends to write to their you know fathers brothers sons whatever who are in the navy or more commonly in the east india company um, and asked them to bring, you know, exotic shells and feathers back from their travels. So there's this amazing letter that's written in 1738 uh, by the Duchess's friend Elizabeth Montague, who you've already uh, mentioned, and she was known, you know, as the Queen of the Blue Stockings, this intellectual mm. circle the Duchess is part of, and she writes to her brother Robert, who at the time is out in Bengal working for the East India Company, Um, and she asked him to collect some shells for the Duchess and this is an amazing example in showing um, not just the global reach of the museum but also the difficulties and the dangers actually in transporting messages and objects across the world. So the letter is sent by Elizabeth Montague via an East India ship, the Grafton, that's heading to Bengal only when it reaches its destination, there's this huge cyclone that makes its way um, up the coast and uh, up the Ganges, and this kills thousands of Indians as well as the British and Dutch colonists who are there, and the Grafton's actually wrecked, um, you know, sending the letter to the bottom of of the river in the Ganges. So we know about this because when Elizabeth Montague finds out that her brother never received this message she writes to the duchess and you know she sort of says oh well never mind my brother's off to China next so maybe he can get you something there and this really gives you know a good idea of their worldview and how removed these elite women are from the realities of empire you know in which indigenous people in Bengal who in this case you know have died in their thousands in an event that montague really sees as a bit of an inconvenience to her collecting yeah also places like tahiti new zealand north america and these these indigenous people sort of become these distant figures who are represented in a museum but don't have any sort of um tangible uh sort of realistic presence
1: gonna say um, tell us about how that plays out with captain cook
0: Yeah okay so Cook is um, sort of a friend and associate of the Duchess and on his three endeavour voyages he also takes Joseph Banks who is a sort of mutual friend between Cook and the Duchess and he is um, the sort of leading naturalist of the day Uh, and when Cook and Banks return to England after I believe it's the second voyage so um, they return in I think 1775 off the top of my head. Uh, Banks invites the Duchess to um, his townhouse in London with some friends and she gets sort of first dibs on objects that have been brought back and um, amongst the objects is um, at least one feathered cape that's supposedly worn by um, the sort of high-ranking members of society um, that they encounter in Hawaii and of course, on the fi- last and final voyage um, of Cook, he's actually killed in Hawaii. And in the sort of um, popular imagery of the day, these feathered capes become a sort of symbol of like frightening savagery and this sort of really violent murder of Cook. Um, and so the fact that the Duchess has one of these actual artifacts in her museum, you know, and she, she sort of puts it on display as a symbol of, the British Empire and this this way of representing people who are not European um, and who are not part of her social circle as sort of intrinsically other. So, you know, this is a sort of inherently racist way of collecting really, and it's a sort of system that's invested in the sort of structures of empire. Um, So another really interesting example of how she sort of tells these stories of different parts of the world is um, in a box that she keeps as part of the museum. So this is just a wooden box that's lined with paper and it survives um, in the Harley collection in Nottinghamshire now. And I'm very grateful to their wonderful curator, Sophie Littlewood for drawing my attention to it. But it's a box filled with a range of objects that um, sort of represent the story that the Duchess is trying to tell about the world, you know, the history of civilization, of knowledge, of exploration, of all the things that she's interested in. So inside is a Native American stone axe head, a figurine carved from a shell in the Bahamas, um, a tiny ancient Egyptian statue and an eagle stone, uh, which is basically what it says on a tin, you know, it's a, a stone that forms inside an eagle, um, a bit like a stone, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so she would get this box out for visitors, and she'd go through this whole performance of taking out each object. What's really interesting is she writes out these little labels that she attaches to each one, and they're basically like fake histories of each object. So histories that are intended, you know, to reflect her ideas of the world, Um, and not necessarily the original context of the objects themselves. So for the figurine that's made from a shell, she writes how this was found on an island uh, near Exuma. It's supposed to have been left there by the Indians and made of the shell of a conch. Now the island of Exuma, um, in the Bahamas, was originally occupied by the Lycaean people, so these are the Indians that the Duchess mistakenly refers to, um, before the arrival of European colonizers, actually in the 17th century, so they're not even in this part of the world at this point, and so she presents them as like these, you know, sort of distant, passive, barely legible figures, and instead she emphasizes the moment of you know, this figurine's discovery is central to its story, and it's told from the perspective of, you know, a European finder of this object. So you start to see how in the museum, indigenous people from all over the world are sort of represented as mysterious and even frightening for the entertainment of the Duchess and her friends. It's
1: mad. <laughs> I, love, I love her. Uh, so if you had to pick one item, in the museum, in her collection, what's the most famous or the most important thing she owned?
0: Okay so I mean as i said there were lots of objects that excited the Duchess and her friends, so the feathered cape that Captain Court brought back or some of the weirder giant shells, but the object that remains uh, sort of the most famous today is the Portland vase. So This is a Roman vase that was discovered in the tomb of a Roman Emperor Alexander Severus um, outside Rome and it's thought to have contained the ashes of his mother and it's brought back to Britain by the famous antiquary Sir William Hamilton who was involved in some of the early um, excavations around Pompeii which I think you mentioned briefly in an earlier podcast Mm -hmm. so by the time he gets to Britain He's in a lot of debt because basically, a bit like the Duchess, um, he can't help himself when it comes to buying antiquities. Although, interestingly, no one's criticizing him for this. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So he sees the bars in a showroom um, of the Scottish antiquities dealer, James Byer, in in Rome. Uh, And he basically says in a letter to a friend, you know, I saw it and I just thought I'll pay any price for it. I need that. Um, But quickly realizes that that was a mistake and he can't afford it. So he brings it to Britain and he goes around all the museums and the private gentlemen's clubs, So things like the Society of Antiquaries, um, publicly claiming credit for having saved this amazing artifact for the nation. But on the sly, he's looking to sell it to someone because he can't actually afford it. So the Duchess buys it in January of 1784 and she does it in secret basically because she wants to go along with this sort of narrative that Sir William Hamilton is setting up and she doesn't want to expose how much debt he's in. Um, And actually she only owns it for a year and then dies when it's put up for sale in the auction. Um, And so it becomes this really important object once it is sort of a rise onto a public market um, at the auction and it's a sort of free for all people bidding for it and it eventually makes its way to the British Museum where it's still on display today although interestingly when you go the um, display text underneath says that it was owned by the Dukes of Portland and says absolutely nothing about the Duchess so you know that's something maybe to remedy um, but you know it's this object that she she basically saves for the nation so it's Um, once it's gone into the British Museum uh, its uh, reproductions of it start to be sold by the Potter Josiah Wedgwood Um, and in fact you can still buy copies of it from the Wedgwood factory and it's you know it's sort of recognizable the world over as this really famous artifact and yet her name um, you know it's still known as the Portland vase and yet no one is sort of aware of that connection with her so that's I just think it's a lovely way into thinking about her collecting and how we might sort of recover her legacy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, so it was lost in a sense. Tell us about the auction.
0: Okay, so this is just my favourite part of her story. So she dies in the summer of 1785. uh, And there's this initial sort of panic that no one can find her will. But eventually when they do, they find that she wants to sell the auction to give the money to all of her children. Um, Although why they would need this when their mother's a duchess, is, you know, debatable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the museum is sold in this really epic 38-day auction, which begins in the spring of 1786, and it's really a turning point in the way the public, you know, who haven't really had access to the duchess or her museum until now, um, how they see the collection, which is completely dismantled. So it's all moved from Bulstrode to her house in Whitehall uh, and suddenly available to anyone who can afford to bid on it. So it's a real shift in how it's being experienced. So what's really interesting is that none of the Duchess's friends um, you know, who have up to this point worked in her museum, found objects for her, um, published work based on those objects, none of them attend. And so the story of the museum as this intellectual hub for a community of scholars, you know, artists, scientists, etc, is suddenly rewritten. As the collection passes over into the sort of public domain. So the sale catalogue that we mentioned earlier is released in the days before the auction starts and it's sold all over London And it doubles as an admission ticket and becomes this kind of like collectible item. So for example, people could buy uh, portraits of the Duchess and images of some of the items for sale, including the Portland bars, which, you know, they'd cut out and paste into the pages. So it becomes um, a sort of a souvenir, really, and the sale itself is already being made into a a famous event. Mm. Um, And the sale's overseen by an auctioneer called Thomas Skinner, who's a contemporary of James Christie, Um, obviously, you know, of Christie's auction house fame. Um, And I think it's really useful to think about the sale as being very much like a sort of glamorous and exciting Christie's auction today. So there's lots of tension, lots of drama, and lots of high-end luxury goods being bought and sold. So when the Portland auction does start, crowds are flocking to her house, the Duchess's house, in Whitehall, where it's being held, and it quickly becomes, you know, a fashionable place to be seen, uh, and the newspapers start to dedicate inches to the gossip about which celebrity has appeared there that day, you know, whose mistress has bid on what, um, and which sort of rich collectors have been battling each other in bidding wars um, and what they're paying for each treasure. So um, to give you an idea of the atmosphere, I've got a really short extract here from Uh, a newspaper called the Morning Chronicle. Um, So I'll just read this really quickly, it's a couple of sentences. So it says, The number of people that attended the Duchess of Portland's museum on Saturday last is scarce to be believed. The rooms were at once so exceedingly hot and crowded that several ladies fainted. The sale begins this day and in what room the auctioneers to exhibit, our correspondent knows not, but is satisfied that the largest room in the house is too small to contain half the persons who would wish to attend. So now what's really interesting is that reporters start to see the auction as this opportunity to write sort of tabloid style celebrity gossip. So another um, newspaper, The Morning Herald, produces um, this thing that it calls a list of uh, supposed purchases. And it's basically like fake news. So it's a list of celebrities along with objects they're meant to have bought and which actually stand in for, um, you know, as euphemism alluding to various sex scandals that they're involved in. I know, I love it. So for example, there are reports about um, Seymour Fleming, Lady Worsley. So she has eloped with Captain George Bizet of the Southampton Militia, Um, and she's been in this uh, sort of shocking public court proceeding opposite her husband, Sir Richard Worsley, for the months leading up to this. Um, and the Morning Herald suggests that at the Portland, Muse- at Portland uh, auction, that she buys, um, you know, suggestively named shells. Um, so things like an orange wide-mouthed cone. So interpret that as you will. Um, <laughs> and the same day's sale, there's another lady uh, called Lady Anne Foley, who was the subject of, you know, a similarly public um, adultery trial. And she supposedly buys a thorny woodcock from the Duchess's shell cabinet. So. He not only, you know, gets a window into what the auction was like, you know, that you could go and potentially spot a famous person, but also you can see how the sale itself kind of gets woven into, um, you know, a new celebrity culture that's like emerging in this period, really. So, yeah.
1: Insane. Um, Why were the final moments particularly dramatic?
0: Okay, so the this really comes back to the portland vase so as i said the duchess has purchased the vase a year earlier in secret and she's paid like sir william hamilton before her an extortionate amount of money for it and um so none of her family it turns out know that she's forked out this huge amount for you know something that's been dug out of the dirt in Italy, um, and so until the auction catalog comes out in the days before the sale begins, no one knows that this is in her museum. Um, and so there's a sort of panic amongst the family because they want to recoup some of the loss that the Duchess, you know, has created by buying this ridiculously expensive um, vase. And so the the vase itself is the second to last lot of the whole 38 days. Um, and there's a huge crowd that comes, and the Duke of Portland, so that's the Duchess's son, um, who's already been Prime Minister once at this point, so he's a really well-known public figure, he appears um, to bid on his mother's own vase in this really embarrassing moment, you know, where he's got to buy back his family jewels, essentially um and lots of other collectors appear including Horace Walpole who you know never has anything but snide remarks about the <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and they they engage in this bidding war um and the Duke of Portland actually wins and he buys it um for a really crazy amount of money um and what's really fascinating is that from from looking at different copies of the auction catalogue where people often you know write in the margins who bought what what they paid for it and things we can piece together these sort of this exciting um, these exciting last few minutes and It turns out that Josiah Wedgwood, the potter who, um, you know, would go on to recreate the vase, was present on the final day. And so you can sort of Mm. imagine that he goes up to the Duke after the Duke's won the vase and says, can I borrow this? I really want to copy it because uh, something like three or four days later, the vase appears on the back of a rickety old carriage. Um, in Staffordshire at Josiah Wedgwood's factory um, and it stays there for 10 years while he tries to um, you know, sort of experiment and work out exactly what it's made from and how the Romans have made such an amazing object and how he can copy it. So, you know, this last day of the sale has this incredible impact on art history in this country and this one object in particular that we still hold as being important for, you know, sort of aesthetic and historical reasons.
1: I love it. I, I didn't know anything about her either. And I love her as well. And I kind of like, I'm annoyed for her that she was just perceived like this crazy woman who couldn't stop buying shoes when actually, um, yeah, it's got its faults, the collection, um, yeah. like you say, with interpretation. But as a as something of its time, it's invaluable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the fact that it was used um by all these people who are making really sort of new, new discoveries and new knowledge about the natural world, about the history and archaeology of this country. You know, her collection was really central to making these discoveries and the fact that these objects are still in our national collections and that they still help us to understand those histories. If it wasn't for her, you know, collecting these objects and saving them for us, then we wouldn't necessarily have access to that data that they bring, you know, even today. So really she's contributed hugely, you know, in, in some questionable ways as well. She was, you know, like I've said, very invested in these sort of colonial and racist narratives that we need to address, um, and, and think about more and more, but she's undeniably sort of invisibly at the heart of our culture still. It's crazy. So what are you going to do with your research? So I finished my PhD a couple of years ago on the museum and I'm writing up the book now. So um, sort of stay tuned.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Well, I really look forward to it because I think it's like part of our history that you're actually trying to give back, um, which is great. So thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about the Duchess of Portland. Thank you for having me. Join us tomorrow for a special edition of Pole Position. Uh, we will be talking to Jack Fairweather about Witold Pilecki, uh, because it is this week the anniversary of his death. Uh, he is, of course, the he is of course the star of Jack's book, The Volunteer, which is a reference to his willing entrance into Auschwitz. And in the afternoon, we will be talking to Gilad Jaffe. Now, remember all those weeks ago when he came on and gave us a fabulous talk about biblical archaeology? Well, he's back because in that show, he promised to come back and talk to us all about the archaeology of Jerusalem. Um, And we had to do it. We couldn't wait any longer. So we're putting that out for you tomorrow. Uh, You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award Uh, We only found out about this today after some people had already cast some votes and we were very excited. Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020 uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as as little as one dollar a month. All you need to do is go to www.historyhack.com historyhack.podbean.com. We'd like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, but we're poor, so we'd appreciate your help. There now follows a public service announcement.
0: I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.